Well, it's great to be back with you guys again tonight, um, resuming our study of Ephesians. I always look forward to these these times, probably the most, uh, it's probably the highlight of my week to come in here. And I uh, just love to spend time with you, hear how things are going, got a lot of new faces, love to meet the new folks, and um, and I love to study the scriptures with you guys. I have always, always leave Thursdays like totally worn out, I like start at 8 a.m., and then I go all the way through Thursday, and then I, I go home at like 11 from here, you know, 11 p.m., but I'm always super energized, you just ask Mary, because Mary's kind of like asleep when I get home, she kind of wakes up, and then I'm usually yakking about everything that, you know, happened, and she was here, obviously, so she doesn't need to get the rehash, but she's very patient, but anyway, not that you needed to know all that, but uh, I, leave, I leave energized, and um, it's sweet. So tonight, we're back in uh, Ephesians 4. So go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. We've learned uh, in our study that if, if we've believed in Jesus, if you've believed in Jesus tonight, that means that's because God has made you a new creature in Christ. Ephesians 2 says that we were once dead in sin. And that means we were, we were spiritually comatose, we had, uh, we had no life, we were unresponsive to God in and of ourselves. So what being dead in our sin means. And Paul tells us that, that God, in His great love for us, made us alive. It was His activity. That means He imparted life to you and I when we heard the gospel. And then in response, almost simultaneously, we believed. We believe the gospel. And now we're new creatures. Ephesians 2.10. And we've been outfitted for good works. That's what Paul says in, in chapter 2. And now God is coming alongside of us to change us. Really, He's come to us, in us, if you will, through the Spirit, uh, to dwell in us, in our, in our inner man, inner woman, in our heart, to conform us to the image of His Son. He's come to us in resurrection power to change us from the inside out. He's committed to transforming us in, into the very image of Christ Himself. And even more than that, God Himself has charted a way for us. He set a pattern for us to follow. God wants us to imitate Him. To bend out to others what we've experienced from God. And that's what Ephesians 4 is all about, especially this last, this last part of the chapter, beginning in verse 25. And so we're calling our series, as Rich mentioned earlier, Imitators of God. Imitators of God. And we've learned that this imitation, or our becoming like God, it doesn't happen all at one time. Right? We know that by experience. <laughs> if that's not true, then something's very wrong right? with all of our lives. It's progressive. This change is progressive. It takes time and it takes work. Even though our identities are completely new, brand new, in Christ, we are still tempted by the lies and practices of our old identity, who we once were. We've got to learn now to renew our minds with truth. We've got to learn to put off what, we once, what once was corrupting us and to, to put on these new qualities that we've been given in Christ. 
But even right now, kind of at the outset of our, our next lesson, I want to make real, one just really obvious observation about this whole thing. If, if our change is progressive, and it is, then that means, you ready for this? Sin still lingers in the church. Okay? If our change is progressive, and it is, then that means our sin still lingers in the church. You and I bring our own sin into the church when we become members of the church. Now, as much as I wish that this weren't the case, all of you that are going to participate in our covenant commitment service on Sunday night, all of you guys that we're super excited to to bring into our assembly and covenant together with you, every single one of you has sin baggage that you're bringing into the church, areas of struggle. And guess what? The body that you're joining has sin baggage. Uh, We all still have this residue of sin that we're seeking to put off and righteousness to put on. Now, why am I bringing this out? Well, I think that sometimes this gets presented in kind of a casual and harmless way. So what do I mean? Well, we hear things like, well, you're sinful, I'm sinful, and that's okay. We'll be sinful together, open and honest, transparent. Church is a hospital for sinners. I mean, we've heard it all, right? And those are good things. Honesty is great. Transparency is great. Uh, church is a hospital idea is great. But it's not merely that I have a non-contagious disease like cancer. So we've compared sin to cancer. That's true. But in that sense, in that comparison, this, my sin only affects me. I think maybe a more biblical analogy would be it, it's more like I'm wrapped with explosives. If my sin goes off, not only will it blow off my leg, but you might get hit with a shrapnel too. And the closer you are to me, the more shrapnel you're going to get. And no doubt, you've likely experienced this. If you haven't, then you're not in any meaningful relationships with other people. The fact that we're growing together means that there will be growing pains. There will be offenses. There will be hurts. There will be misunderstandings. There will be minor annoyances. There will be differences and even betrayals. We will sin against each other. But it's amazing. It's amazing how many of us expect that we won't, or that it shouldn't happen. No one should say anything that hurts us. No one should do anything that offends us. No one should act unkindly or inconsiderately. Now, we we readily admit to, to struggling with sin, but the moment someone else's sin affects us, we don't know what to do. We think something's like really wrong. With the church, you know, with this church, another church, it shouldn't happen, right? So we'll, that, and, and we respond to that in all kinds of ways. We'll, we'll leave a church without trying to work through anything. We'll panic. We'll request a different roommate rather than learning to handle it God's way. Or like we'll see tonight in our passage, we'll harbor the offense and we'll begin to resent. We'll begin to gossip and, and other things, slander, fight, quarrel. So, our sin is a threat, but God wants us to realize something else tonight from our passage. We're going to get there. 
Sin is a threat to the church. But do you realize that there's something else operating when you're sinned against in the church? God is providing you the greatest opportunity to imitate him. When you are sinned against, God is providing you the greatest opportunity to imitate him. Lean in here. We are never more like God than when we respond to sin with his kindness, with lavish forgiveness, and with proactive reconciliation. You're never more like God. And in this way, the sin that that threatens our unity is hijacked by the Lord and is actually used to promote unity. And that's as we learn to respond with forgiving kindness, which is the topic of our message tonight. It's the the topic of what Paul is going to address next in our chapter in Ephesians. And it's, it's uh, how Paul's going to equip us. Paul continues to spell out for us these, these kinds of qualities that are, that are going to promote healthy body life in the church. Strong unity in the church. And he knows there's nothing that does this like forgiveness does. So look with me in Ephesians 4, 31 and 32. Paul says, verse 31, Let all bitterness... Every form of it, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So here in our text, Paul gives us two more directions in our, in our pursuit of imitating God. He gives us something to abandon or put off. It's been his typical pattern through this whole, this whole section. We've seen that. Something to discard. And then something to cultivate. Something to put on. And he even tucks a motivation into the very end of this. Some, a way for us to renew our minds. But we'll get there. <clears throat> but two directions, really, is, is where he's going here. And we'll take these one at a time. First, he tells us to abandon bitterness that injures Abandon, we should abandon, discard, put away bitterness that, is, that injures, that hurts others. <clears throat> Look with me again in uh, verse 31. Paul says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. So that's the first direction from a negative standpoint, something to put away. Abandon bitterness that, that's, that injures. So here, Paul lists a a cluster of sins that are all connected by the thread of anger. Okay? So we'll think about the connections. Why did Paul group these together? I think they're connected by this this thread of anger. He seems to start internally with bitterness, and then it ends with what comes out of our mouths in clamor and slander. And it's important to note that that all of these sinful qualities are typically a response to being sinned against. You see that? It's how our our old selves once chose to respond when we were wronged. And that's either to a perceived wrong, may not actually be wrong, it may just be something that is an annoyance to you, uh, or it may be an actual wrong, 
something that was actually an actual sin against you. But more on this in just a minute. Let's before we get really get into the implications here. Let's take a look at the, each of these sins that Paul tells us to abandon. First on the list is bitterness. Bitterness. This is resentment. It's kind of an English synonym. Or it's hatred that's in our hearts. And this happens when someone sins against us and we don't deal with it biblically. So resentment and bitterness takes root in our hearts as a result of not dealing with an offense. And then it becomes like a pair of sunglasses that, that casts an embittered shadow on everything else we see. You view everything through that lens of, of embitterment. Just to give you a, an illustration, if someone does something to you, you, you take up a hurt and offense you know, in that, and then you, you don't forgive them, and you grow embittered. <clears throat> then everything they do, you may, you may just, just kind of think this through with me, everything they do from that point forward you regard with skepticism. You begin to interpret their actions through that lens of bitterness. So even something that they, you know, your friend may see an action and they may interpret it differently than you. But you may see that same action and interpret it as, as, as ill-motivated toward you. So bitterness is what I mean by it's a lens that if, we're, if we don't take care of it, uh, it begins to pollute the way that we view everything. So bitterness is the first thing on this list. We're going to move quickly through these. And this bitterness often leads to various forms of, of wrath and anger that he mentions next. These next two words, wrath and anger. There may be some shades of nuance between these two words, but they're basically synonymous. Okay? Whether that's, it's, it's quick or explosive outbursts or, or more internal seething or just irritability, this resentment, this first word, this bitterness, feeds the wrath and anger in our hearts. Then Paul gives some very specific outworkings of this wrath and anger in clamor and then slander. He says next, so we'll take those one at a time. Clamor is literally the shouting and fighting that happens over interpersonal conflict. It's the sharp comments, the biting sarcasm, the interpersonal jabs, the manipulative arguments that escalate into um, worse forms of, of argumentation and shouting. And the goal of your words is to injure another person as a form of punishment in this sort of clamor. And sadly, we've all done this, and, and we've all experienced then the devastation of this at some level. When our words give vent to the anger in our, in our hearts, and you know how damaging this is. It only, it's, it only compounds the problem. It doesn't, it doesn't solve anything. It only incites more anger from the person that we're unloading on, more destruction, more injury. And then not only does this impact the person that you're angry at, but it will also spill out more widely to those around you as you begin to slander that person, which is the next thing on our list. And slander is just any kind of speech that injures the reputation of another person. It's any kind of speech that injures the reputation of another person. It flows out of being resentfully angry. So think this through. You want others to share your low view of that person because of the offense that they caused you. 
So you tear them down. You elevate yourself over them with slander, <clears throat> with you know potential innuendos about their character or what they're doing or whatever it is. And we, we all know how that goes. And, I mean, and you might think that's the end of the list, um, but it's not. <clears throat> Paul continues, it doesn't just end with speech, slanderous speech, but with malice. And that's at the end. He says, all malice, it's got to be put away. So every form of it. And this, this refers to the inner attitude or the outward action that intends to harm another person. So that inward attitude that, that spills out into outward action uh, that you want to harm. It's calculated, and I think it's the ultimate expression of the embittered heart, which is where Paul starts at the, at the beginning of this list. Malice has murderous intentions if left unchecked and allowed to flow out unrestrained. By the way, God puts all kinds of restraints on humanity in his grace. You think about that? Parents, governments, churches, um, even restraining unbelievers. And when those restraints are lifted, we see what happens in the human heart, don't we? The resentment builds to, through anger and clamor and slander and then ultimately in, in acts of destruction and malice. And that was once our heart, okay? We shouldn't, make, we shouldn't think that we're better than this. Okay, that, that's what we were, and that's in various forms of that. Maybe you were restrained, tightly restrained, and maybe you didn't, the, the Lord in his mercy didn't allow that to manifest to you killing somebody. But it's still, it's still who we once were. These, all of these sinful responses are responses to sin, responses to being sinned against it's how our old natures, our old, our old selves who were corrupted in sin, were used to dealing with other people who sinned against us. But Paul says that all of this has to go. It's got to go, because we're new people in Christ. Notice how comprehensive he is. He doesn't say, like, oh, you can let some of this hang around, some of the sinful anger hang around. Um, he says, no, it's all got to go. Notice the, just the wording here. In verse 31, let all bitterness, so he starts it with that, with the all word there, and then he ends the verse with all malice. So all of that has to go. It's comprehensive. None of it can stay. <clears throat> but before we move off this, this point, um, I just I want us to think a little more deeply about it. So why are we tempted toward these kinds of responses? Even as believers. Because Paul's telling us to put these things off, which implies we still struggle with that, right? We still struggle with going back to the old man and the old ways of dealing with these things. So why are we tempted toward these responses? A few thoughts. This is, again, not comprehensive, but sin is wrong. It's legitimately wrong. And sin incurs a very real debt. Sin is legitimately wrong, and it does incur a very real debt. This is a reality that the Bible doesn't minimize. It expresses clearly, it expresses this truth clearly, and we, we can't just pretend like sin doesn't happen or that there aren't actual consequences for sin, for wrongdoing. There are. And 
I think the point is we feel this acutely whenever we're sinned against. You know there's like a wrongdoing has happened. There's, you have been wronged. And our, our hearts cry out for justice because that's the way that we're wired. So one author calls anger a moral emotion, meaning we're, we're making moral judgment calls when we're angry. I have been wronged and this demands a response. So, and that's, sin's legitimately wrong. And it doesn't incur, and does incur a real debt against you. So, on the, on the front end, that's, that's the beginning of why we're tempted toward these sinful responses. But, but where, this, where this goes off track, maybe, where my clicker goes off track, John, you might have to help me out here, is that we wrongly believe that we're the judge, jury, and executioner. Not only do we believe that we're those things, but we believe that we are the impartial judge, jury, and executioner. We are tempted to pursue vengeance and justice ourselves. As the offended party, we we want judgment, and we believe that we are the arbitrators of that judgment and justice. But we forget something very important. We're not. Okay? God is judge. And God has appointed means to dealing with the offenses against us. We're not impartial. In fact, if a judge, an actual judge in the courtroom, is involved, actually involved in a case, like if, it, if it's something against him or he excuses himself from making judgments, because he knows he's biased in that case. And so if we're wronged, the last thing we're going to be is an impious judge, right? We're going to be so biased against our, our, own, our own case. So we've, we've, got to, we've got to remember that. But I think we're tempted in that direction. And then I think another, another piece of this, why we're tempted toward these responses, is that we, have a, we just have a proud view of ourselves. We have an overinflated view of ourselves. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, when someone sins against almighty me, I want to bring down my wrath on the perpetrator. Right? I think things like, how dare you sin against me? Me, you know? And that's the attitude of a proud heart. We are often easily offended, even by things that aren't sinful. Inherently sinful. But catch this. If we are easily offended, it's because we have a high view of ourselves. It's because we're proud. Another way of saying this is if you're humble, it's hard to offend you. We're often quick to judge and slow to show mercy because we forget how sinful we are, how in need of mercy we are, how much we've sinned against others, and how great God's kindness has been to us. But we'll get, we'll, we're going to really hammer that out in just, a, in just a minute. These are just a few reasons, I think, why, why we trend in this way uh, of our old selves. There's more if we sat and thought about it longer. In fact, this would be a great discussion question for those of you who want a discussion question. Uh, you know, talk through this question. Why are we tempted toward these responses? 
These are just a few of the lies that we believe in in the moment. So, Paul says we've got to abandon this. We've got to abandon the old way of responding to offenses. We've got to unpack those lies and then learn to respond in, in new ways, in God's way. Next, he says we must learn to cultivate kindness that forgives. Cultivate kindness that forgives. Look with me in, uh, again, just verse 32. Instead, we should be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Now, you might be surprised at how much is packed into this little verse uh, about how we should deal with offenses. It's actually pretty incredible. Notice initially that Paul tells us the kind of twin attitudes that we should be cultivating here. These twin attitudes are kindness and affection. Kindness and affection. Verse 32, he says, um, be kind to one another, or, or literally, you could translate this more dynamically, like become kind to one another, tender-hearted. So kindness and tender-heartedness, are, they go together. And these are sort of these twin um, these twin dispositions or attitudes that uh, Paul wants us to cultivate. So what is kindness? What's kindness? Well, it's the disposition that desires to do good, that desires to bless, that desires to be gracious. It has the idea of being good or pleasant. Kind person, pleasant person, good person. Kindness is warm. It smiles. It's it's welcoming, it's inviting. Back in chapter 2, Paul says that the, the kind of, this, this kind of kindness that we're talking about, it characterizes God himself, and, he, and he's going to display it toward you for all of eternity. Uh, just, just jump back to 2.7 here, which is really um, helpful. Chapter 2, verse 7. It's in this context of where Paul's telling us that God has made us alive, If we jump up to verse 4, he says, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, here's the main verb, God made us alive together with Christ, by grace you've been saved, and he raised us up with him, and he seated us with him in the heavenly places. So he's, he's taken us from being dead and as rebels and terrorists against his kingdom, He's made us alive, and then He seated us with His Son in heaven, which means He's put us at the table of royalty as sons and daughters of the King. So why has He done this? So that, verse 7, in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace, we could translate it like this, displayed in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So, our God is a God who is going to display his kindness to you for all of eternity in Christ. And in fact, the lavishness of his kindness. That's why he saved you and exalted you. And the way he did it is so that for all of eternity he can shower his kindness on you. And now, Paul is saying, cultivate that kindness. Cultivate that kindness. Imitate your Father and King 
in cultivating the kind of kindness that you have received and will receive eternally. And notice that he's narrowing the focus to the church. It's not that we're sh- we should be unkind to unbelievers and kind to the church. It's not the point, Paul's point here, but he says to be kind to one another, meaning to your church members. So part of that is because Paul and, and God are very concerned with how we treat each other. Because how we treat each other reflects him. And, it, it, and God uses that for the, his glory and the mission in the world. Okay? So God's very concerned with how we interact with one another and that we are kind to one another as he's been kind to us. But that's not the only word he uses. He, he rounds it out here. He pairs another word alongside this kindness word. He says affection. We're to be affectionate. That's tenderheartedness or, or compassion. Or you could combine the words tenderhearted compassion. And he's talking about the, the inner emotions that we feel that are, that are motivated by genuine love and care, genuine concern for the well-being of others. Just to help you get an idea of how this word's used in the New Testament, uh, Jesus is described as having compassion on Israel because they were like sheep without a shepherd. He's described as having compassion on a leper. So the kind of the context of this word where it shows up are, are people that are in, like, they're pretty bad off, right? Like, not having a king as a nation is bad. And being a leper and not being able to heal yourself and uh, your skin has fallen off you, is in a bad condition. And Jesus is described as having compassion in both of those contexts toward these pitied people. And it's this, this emotional love and care and concern for the well-being of others. Now, I want you just to think about both of these qualities in the context of sin and conflict in the church against you. God wants you to learn to respond like him. To respond with kindness instead of resentment. To respond with tender-hearted compassion instead of malice. Now, this is incredible and it's it's otherworldly. Like the the world doesn't have a category for this kind of for this kind of compassion, this kind of kindness. It's divine kindness. It's so unlike what we see in, in the world. And it has, a, it has an attractional influence to those that God is drawing to himself. But it also has a, um, it evokes a lot of wrath and anger from those who hate the church, they hate Christ. So it, it's, a, it's a both and, and that's where we want to be, Right? We want to be um, imitating God in these ways. Now, as incredible as this is, Paul doesn't keep it just at the attitude level. I mean, that's important. It's like foundational, these attitudes of, of compassion and kindness. But this attitude needs to be displayed, especially in the face of sin and conflict. So how does kindness and tenderness show up? in our lives. How ought it show up in our lives? Well, Paul tells us that one of the primary ways that this kind of affection and attitude will be expressed in our church is in lavish forgiveness. That's how it is expressed. Through forgiveness. We're to be kind and affectionate by practicing forgiveness. Look in verse 32. I love these like two-verse sermons because I just read, the, I read these verses like ten times. 
you know, throughout the sermon. So it's great. Uh, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, and we could, we could literally translate it by forgiving one another. So it's a participle in Greek, and the participle continues to elaborate the main verb that came before it, which is um, be kind. So be kind, and I think it shows the means, by forgiving one another. It, it shows and elaborates what this kindness looks like in real time. Now, Paul assumed his readers understood biblical forgiveness, obviously, because he didn't really elaborate on what that means, what biblical forgiveness is, and what it's not. So I just I want to take a minute uh, while we're here to just camp out and just unpack forgiveness. So what is it? What are we talking about when we're talking about forgiveness? Well, I just, I've, there's more we could say, uh, like always, but um, I've, I've just given you a few statements. Forgiveness is a costly cancellation of debt. Forgiveness is the costly cancellation of a debt. And I just put Luke 11, 4 there where um, it's part of the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us as we forgive our debtors. It's the language he uses there. Forgiveness is a a cancellation of debt. So many of you probably have loans. (laughs) Why did you bring that up right now? Um, So if you were to go to the bank and the bank said, we've canceled your debt. That would be amazing, right? Or Sally Mae or whoever it is that, that owns you right now. Um, were to just cancel your debt, and there was, there was like written documentation of this, that that actually happened, and now you'd no longer have to pay it. That's the issue. Or if someone owed you money and you canceled the debt, maybe let's put it in those terms. If someone owed you money and you said, hey, the debt is forgiven, that's the idea of forgiveness. It's a cancellation of a debt that was incurred. This means a couple things. I think this illustration is helpful in a couple ways. Okay, Number one, it's costly. right? The bank, in the first illustration, or you, in the second illustration, had to eat the debt. Like, the money just didn't go away. You paid for it. And that's what we feel in forgiveness. You feel that. The one who forgives has to absorb the debt, sort of. In reality, sort of a side note, in reality, you are, you are extending forgiveness, but there's a, there's a deeper reality going on where if they're a believer, Christ has actually already absorbed all the wrath of God for that sin. And if they are an unbeliever, and they continue in unbelief and die in their unbelief, they will bear the punishment for their sin against you for all eternity. So in one sense, we do absorb a debt, but in another sense, we, we really don't. And that's going to be tremendously helpful as we think about forgiving other people. But forgiveness is the costly cancellation of a debt. It implies that, that, that it's, it costs us something. It implies that there's actual sin to forgive Okay? Not just minor annoyances or inconveniences. Those are not sins. 
So somebody smacking their food, as much as I hate that, is not a sin against me. It may be if they know that it's a sin, if they know it's an annoyance, and they do it to provoke me anyway, but that inherently is not a sin. Okay? Someone not responding to me in the, the precise way that I want to be responded to. That's not sin. In fact, there's probably sin on my part. Okay? So this forgiveness, the, the, the costly cancellation of a debt, we have to sort of start there. Like, is it actually sin against me, or am I just sort of annoyed? Right? So, but forgiveness, anyway, is the, is the costly cancellation of a debt. It's principle number one. Forgiveness is fundamentally a promise. It's fundamentally a promise. And I've listed a couple references here, and the references are, are of God's forgiveness toward us. So in this Jeremiah text in Hebrews, Hebrews is actually picking up that Jeremiah text in the, in the New Covenant and applying it to us, so that's why I put both those there. And then Psalm 103, the, the Jeremiah text says that um, God, God is in, in the New Covenant is going to not remember our sins anymore. It's a, it's a promise for him not to remember our sins, but to remove them as far as the east is from the west. That's Psalm, language from Psalm 103, 12. And what that means is not that God has some sort of amnesia, but that God, is, it's a covenant promise. To not remember is a, is a covenant promise. It's saying, I'm not going to hold your sins against you on the final day. So when we extend forgiveness, we're essentially making the same promise not to hold the sins of others against them. Make sense? So in that way, it's, it's fundamentally a promise not to hold the sins of others against them to their, to their harm. This means then, if that's the case, this means I'm not going to dwell on the offense against me and continue to nurse the hurt. If I'm not, that's, that's a form of holding their sin against them or continuing to count their sins against them. If I continue to nurse on that hurt and cultivate that, that resentment, that resenting attitude that we talked about earlier. It also means I'm not going to use their past sins as, as ammo against them in the future. Right? We've all been there. Get into an argument with that roommate, sibling, parent. And then you dig back out, you grab some of that, you, know, you grab some of those old sins against you, and then you lob them out you know, as proof, justification for your, you know, your attitude in the moment. That's not part of what we, we've got to repent of that. That's holding our, the sins that we've forgiven of others, that's holding that against them, counting their sins against them. It means we won't gossip about them in the future to others. That would be continuing to count their sins against them. So there's all kinds of implications. But just the point is it's fundamentally a promise that I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to hold, I'm not going to hold your sins against you anymore, even though they were, that was a real, actual offense against me. And that's important because that, that implies that forgiveness is then an act of the will, and it's not emotions. Forgiveness is an act of the will. It's not an act of the emotions. And I, I put down here, just as a quick reference, Luke 17, 4, um, which talks about how we're supposed to forgive, like, a lot. Seven times, you know, comes to you, forgive him, comes to you again, forgive him, comes to you again, forgive him, and the same day, okay? So this is not talking about, like, working you up into an emotional response. This has to be an act of the will to choose to forgive. 
you know. We're commanded to forgive the offender, even if it's a repeat offender in the same day, says Luke 17.4. When I obey the Lord's commands, get this, any, any command, right? When we obey, we obey from faith as an act of the will, even if I don't necessarily feel like it in the moment. So, faith trusts God, it trusts what he says, and then when I obey, it's an act of my will to, to obey Christ. It's, not, it's, it's irrespective of how I feel. If I, if I want to do it, awesome. That's like ideal scenario. But more times than not, I've got to die to myself, which is also what Jesus calls me to, right? I've got to mortify my sin, my sin of not wanting to do this, and I've got to go through with it and obey by faith. So forgiveness is fundamentally an act of the will. When we've been sinned against, we rarely initially feel like forgiving the other person. If you're waiting on that, not going to happen. But this helps us tremendously, especially if we're tempted in the future to bring up their offenses. That's because we've chosen to forgive them. And that's independent of how we feel. So you wake up tomorrow, you're like, ah, can you believe what she did to me? You know, it's like, okay, oh, well, yeah. Act of the will, remember, you chose to do that, and now you're, you're going to remember to choose to do that again today. To bring that back before the Lord and confess, Lord, I'm, I'm holding the sin against this person again. We may and often will f- still feel the sting of sin days and months, maybe even years, depending on the severity uh, of the sin. You're not weird if that's the case. But when we've chosen to forgive in our hearts, we continue to renew our minds according to this decision, in line with this decision, and continue to act then in accordance with what we've chosen to do. Make sense? And in God's kindness, He often brings our emotions in line with that. As we die to ourselves and learn to live to Him. And now, last thing we'll say about forgiveness is just as sort of an implication out of all this, it's not the same as trust. Forgiveness is not the same as trust. I, I, so many people I talk to equate these two things. So it's just important just to say this. It's not the same as, as trust. Just because we forgive someone in obedience to Christ, this does not mean that complete trust is immediately restored. In fact, in, in, some instance, in some instances, it may be incredibly unwise to restore the trust lost by the offender. Even if they're repentant, broken, confessing sin, it may be unwise. Just, okay, you want an example of a scenario like this? Imagine the family member who molests the child while babysitting. It would be incredibly unwise to give that person the same amount of trust after the incident, even if they were completely crushed and repentant. We must forgive. That's a command. As hard as that would be as a parent. But we don't have to immediately reinstate the level of trust they had before the offense. Those are two very separate things. So I just want to clarify that for you. And there's so many more things we could say about forgiveness. Um, so if you have questions out of this, please come talk. We'll, we can hash out specific scenarios. Um, and that would be a form of us equipping you. So uh, definitely do that. But that's just want to take a brief moment to try to clarify what Paul's getting at here when we're to forgive one another. Now, 
it's obvious that this kind of forgiveness, uh, or I'm sorry, this kindness that forgives is not easy. In fact, without God enabling us to do this, it's impossible. So this, this begs the question then, how in the world do we cultivate a kind and tender-hearted disposition that flows out in, in free forgiveness, especially when we've been sinned against in some of the most horrific ways? Okay? Is it fair? Fair question? Well, Paul, at the, at the end of this verse, he, he, he ends this, this verse with an incredible stimulus to forgive, and it's like just a couple words, okay? And I'm just calling this last, this last point the stimulus, okay? Our experience of God's forgiveness. Our experience of God's forgiveness of us is the stimulus that we need to forgive others in this way. He says in verse 32, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. This is the phrase, As God in Christ forgave you. If we miss this, we've missed everything. So this is very important. Paul says we're to forgive just as God in Christ forgave us. He doesn't simply say because God in Christ forgave us. He did say that. That's, just, that's implied here. But he's saying just as. Just as God in Christ forgave us. And that's important. Because this means God's forgiveness of us is both the template and the motivation to forgive other people. So God's forgiveness is the template. It's the example, the form. You know, like, okay, we're going to learn from this. It's the template. And simultaneously, it's the motivation for us to, for us to forgive this way. So what do I mean by template? Okay, we need to think through how has God forgiven you? Okay? How has God forgiven you? Well, just think about it. You were in, infinitely in his debt. And you were incapable of repaying him and making amends. And you didn't want to repay him or make amends or think that you needed to. And your very nature was fundamentally in rebellion against him. That's what it means to be dead in sin. Ephesians 2.1 To be following the prince of the power of the air. That means you're following Satan. Be held captive to the desires of your flesh, that means like even if even if Satan were gone and the deadness were gone, you would still stay in the prison because you want to be there because you're enslaved to your flesh. So you didn't deserve his forgiveness. And there wasn't anything in you that compelled him to forgive you. He did it freely and in spite of you. So the first part of our template is that God's forgiveness is free. Wonderfully free to you. That's not all. God himself absorbed the infinite cost of your forgiveness. So, there we go. It is costly. He demonstrated his great love for you, his extravagant mercy, by pouring his own wrath out on his son. 
so that he could lavish you with this kind of forgiveness. Christ willingly experienced one of the most gruesome deaths known at that time. And that's not even to mention enduring the Father's wrath, which was far worse, like categorically worse than the cross. And he did all of that to secure your forgiveness. It was at great cost to himself. And in spite of you. (laughs) And that's not all. Amazingly, he, he promises that it is a complete and a sufficient forgiveness. Your sins are never to be brought back up again. Ever. Ever. You're fully forgiven with no strings attached. He won't bring them up at the day of judgment. He won't condemn you for them. His justice is fully satisfied, and he forgives you completely. He promises, like we just saw, not to count your sins against you. That's the glorious good news of the gospel. So, Paul says, TBC boundless? Forgive like that. That's how you should forgive. That's your template. That's your example. That's, that's, that's what God is going to work in you to learn to forgive like this. Forgive freely. Forgive at cost to yourself without getting your pound of flesh. Forgive lavishly. Forgive fully. Don't hold anything back. But not only is he our example, but our very experience of his forgiveness, you've got to lean in there. You've got to embrace that. As awkward as that feels, of like, whoa, that's really true? Yeah. Because your experience of the forgiveness becomes the motivation. It's the bedrock motivation for us to do the impossible, for us to, to forgive like this. When I think about how God has forgiven me, okay, uh, a couple of motivational things start happening. I'm just going to give you just two, okay? I am humbled. I'm humbled, and I see myself in the proper light. I see that the sins of others against me, the sins of others against me, they pale in comparison to my sin against God. Ephesians 2. God has graciously and lavishly forgiven my national debt worth of sin. And I've been out of shape about five bucks, right? That's, that's the, the idea of Matthew 18, 21 through 35. It's like, really? Are you, is that, are you, are you serious? So before, when I, in the old clay, the old clay maximized the offenses of others against me. But now, I see more clearly. And I see more clearly through humility, by being humbled by the gospel. So it's just one little way that begins to kind of give me some uh, reservoir, maybe, to, to, to give this kind of forgiveness out. But beyond this, I, I begin to see now that this offense against me is an opportunity to mimic God. It's not some kind of like worst-case scenario for my life that I wish would have never happened, and I want to completely erase off the face of the earth. Like, so it's how we typically 
view sin against us. It's like, ah, everything's going wrong, right? In this case, according to the sovereignty of God, is wisdom for me and goodness displayed to me in this moment, this is now an opportunity. I'm seeing this now. It's now an opportunity to mimic God. He calls me to this. This means he's going to ordain that I get sinned against. However mysterious that is to us and how that works, I don't know. But he ordains that to happen so that I can learn to mimic and imitate him. It's an honor to be given the privilege to forgive like God. This totally changes the paradigm. And it it begins to provide us with some incredible motivation to forgive. As I learn to freely forgive, I'm bearing fruit and I'm producing the good works that God intends. Ephesians 2.10 I'm strengthening His bride. Think about the, the corporate dynamics of this, okay? You forgive, you strengthen the bride. You strengthen the church. You choose to respond in your own way, according to your own wisdom. You destroy the bride. You hurt the bride. But in this case, you strengthen the bride. I'm contributing to the unity of the church and His glory in the world. And all of this happens as I remember how He has forgiven me. This little phrase, forgive as God in Christ forgave you. Now we could, we could map that out. Again, another great discussion question. How is, how is God's forgiveness a motivation for you to forgive? But this means we can also work backwards from this truth. Okay, What do I mean by that? Well, if I'm, if I'm really struggling to forgive, it's hard and I don't want to do it, this shows something about what I believe about these things, at least in the moment. It reveals your actual theology in this moment. It shows me that I'm forgetting what I once was. I'm forgetting how much debt was canceled for me. I envision that my sin is big against, or that, God's sin, that my sin against God is small, and other sins against me are, are huge or big. But I need, I need a reversal in my perspective. I need to reverse to see that the, the things, these things in, a, in the right sense, in the true sense. But it, it's helpful. And it shows me that, that, that I'm viewing this sin against me as, as an ultimate threat to my well-being. Which also isn't ultimately true. I'm forgetting that this is an opportunity to grow in my relationship with God as I learn to mimic Him in some profound ways. I'm forgetting that I play a vital role in preserving the unity of the church, yada, yada, yada. Everything we just talked about, you can turn it on its head and see that you're forgetting that when it's a struggle to forgive. And it is. I'm there with you. I'm not like some pious guy that it's easy to forgive. It's not. But it helps us see what we really believe in that moment so that we can get more clarity and and begin to, to grow out of that. And this is the better way, guys. This is the better way. Kindness that's displayed in forgiveness. And Paul wants us to cultivate that. He's equipping us to handle sin in the church in this way. We've got to put off handling it the old way and now put on this kind of godlike attitude here that is kind and forgives. And so just I want to wrap this up by asking one more really practical question. So what exactly should this look like right here in Boundless? Okay? What should this look like right here in Boundless, here at Timberlake, in our little corner of the ministry at Timberlake in Boundless. Well, here are a few, just, how many are there? Two thoughts. Number one, we should expect that at some level, we will sin against each other right here in Boundless. It's going to happen. Okay? I wish this weren't the case, 
but this is the reality. Someone's going to say something hurtful to you. Someone will likely act inconsiderately toward you. Someone may take advantage of your generosity. Someone may even slander you and betray your trust. And I hope we can minimize this as we grow together. It's like the heartbeat of a pastor, right? But we have to prep ourselves for this. My job, one of the things I try to do is minimize the shrapnel, okay? But, but we've got to know that these things are going to happen, and we have to see, then, the great opportunity that we have in them when they do happen. Does that make sense? So that's first thought. Prep yourselves. It's going to happen, and it's not the end of the world. Through humility, we can work through it, and the church can come out stronger, more glorious as a result. Second thought, last one, if something has happened to you, if you've been sinned against and it's not clear how you should handle it biblically, because we haven't even gotten into that, we didn't even touch that, like practical steps of how to like pursue this in the church, don't have time, okay? But if it's not clear how that, that should work out, then get discipleship from a mature, wise Timberlake member or pastor, okay? Contact us, we will we'll help you. Another mature person can help you navigate hurts in the path forward in some very helpful ways, and they often prevent us from detonating the bomb, if you will, and causing more problems within the church. So humble yourself and say, I don't know how to handle this. And you're not gossiping in that, okay? So if you go to a mature person, they're going to equip you, right? They're not going to then go and spread that out in the church. It's, it's between you, and they're going to help equip you to help deal with this thing in the proper biblical way, to minimize shrapnel for the glory of God. Okay, and that just, that's sort of my way of saying, like, those are the, I, I couldn't give you the steps, so I'll just say, like, get you to somebody that can give you the steps, right, of, like, how to handle these things. So there's other tons of practical suggestions, but I'm going to cut it off here. If you have particular questions or something that's unclear to you um, out of this, please don't hesitate to come up and talk with any of us afterwards. We would love to, love to chat. So let's pray. Father, we want to be people who forgive like you. We realize what we're asking in that and that that path's difficult, but it's so rewarding and joyful at the end of it. And we pray that right here in our little ministry that we would be characterized by humility and a desire to forgive because of how we've been forgiven and that you would be pleased to use us in that um, both to encourage the church as a whole. Um, Many of these older saints exemplify this so well for us. But that that as they look on our lives and they see us trying to do this, um, that they would be encouraged and that you would be glorified even more than that, that you would be pleased with us, that we wouldn't grieve your spirit by how we use our words, but would bring you pleasure. And then that you would be pleased to use us, use the, the power of our lives as a demonstration of the reality of the gospel and that more people would be saved and sanctified as a result. We pray in Christ's name.